Hello there, welcome back to the second part of the Interstellar episode. I really hope you liked the first one. Uh, this is going to be the one where we get into the truly juicy stuff. So buckle up once again, we're going to get started. Once again, I just want to remind you that if you haven't seen the movie yet, there's major spoilers in here, so go watch it and then come back later. All right, welcome back to Interstellar, everyone. In the previous episode, I left you when um, our protagonists had just got to Dr. Man's planet. And the scene that we see now is another very emotionally dense scene. And I think even more now, because of the quarantine situation and what's going on in the world and the social distancing, because in this scene, Coop opens up what looks like a coffin, because it really does look like a coffin. And that's where Dr. Man had been cryosleeping up to that moment. He wakes up with a jolt and immediately grabs onto Coop and he's so impossibly happy to be in the presence of another person that it truly really breaks your heart. It's so it's almost unbearable to watch. And you see Coop holding him to himself tight while Dr. Man just starts sobbing uncontrollably. And you instantly feel for this character. You you have immediate empathy for him. And you understand that no matter how good or brave of a scientist you are, humans are social animals, no matter what. So, yeah, I think I think that really resonated with me even more this time around because of the situation they were all in. Then we have another scene that's a killer, straight up killer. Um, and I figured that the entire second part of the movie is a killer emotionally, even more than the first half. So just grab your tissues. I told you so. <laughs> um, this is when Dr. Brand gets the video message from Murph and Murph is saying, you knew, right? This was all a sham. You left us here to suffocate, to starve. Did my father know too? And then she starts sobbing as well and, she just says, Dad, I just want to know if you left me here to die. I just have to know. But Dr. Brent seems to have no idea what Murph is talking about and promptly tells Cooper so. But man seems to know. And this is when we find out that the gravity equation on which Professor Brand was supposed to have been working on for the past 30 years was actually solved even before man left earth so a long time ago but it couldn't be used because it, it couldn't reconcile relativity with quantum mechanics so uh the problem here is data There's, they don't have enough data so where data was needed they had to there had to be someone uh willing to go and and uh, and see through a black hole well someone or something so plan a was never an option all they had was plan B. The soundtrack, once again, is, is very reflective of the scene and you hear this ominous music that, that's growing and growing with every word uttered in the scene. 
and it goes so well with Dr. Brand's desperate disbelief at the at, at what she calls the monstrous lie of her father. And Cooper is mostly angry. Is it's an angered type of sorrow. Um, it's still is also in disbelief, but it's is much, much, much more angry than Dr. Brand. So now Cooper is doing exactly what Dylan Thomas worded so well in his famous poem. He's trying to rage against the dying light once again. And his rage is, this is, the rage that he feels is exactly what keeps him going. Is exactly what makes him move up to the next thing. So at this moment, Dr. Brown moves closer to Cooper and she says, Cooper, what can I do? And he says, let me go home. When we go back to Earth with Merv, we see that she's talking about her ghost with her co-worker. And she says that she has a feeling that this ghost, this entity, might get her closer to the equations answer that they lack and that they so desperately need. He felt like a person, she says, like he was trying to tell me something. Once again, I ask you to pay attention to the music, to the soundtrack here because it's flawless and it's it's really not difficult to pay attention to it because it is very loud it keeps on growing it's so reflective of the of of the scene and it just sucks you into it it requires your attention back in space this is when romilly has an idea maybe there is a chance for the people on earth after all he says that Gagantua is an oldest pin in black hole and the tidal gravity is so quick that something crossing the horizon fast might survive. So the horizon they're talking about here is that line that has never been crossed inside a black hole. So there is a chance that going into the black hole might mean gathering the data needed to save the people on Earth. They might do it. While they're preparing to embark on this new dangerous mission, the big plot twist of the movie unfolds. Second, probably only to the moment we learn that there was no plan A to begin with. This is the scene where Dr. Mann reveals that he can't let them leave with that ship. That ship is needed to complete the mission. But isn't the mission complete? Isn't this the future planet for a human colony to grow on? We learn here that it never was, that Dr. Mann distorted the data all along so he could hopefully get picked up and brought back to Earth. The fear of nothingness and loneliness that this man exudes at this point in the movie makes you sympathise with him, even though he is now wearing the enemy vest. He's now a villain of sorts. Because he's, he's literally trying to kill Cooper while confessing to his... Um, crimes, because they are crimes. What's really interesting about this scene is that the fight between them is muffled. It, it is a physical fight, but it's very muffled. And muffled is also the sound of a distant percussion. 
which sounds like a clock, and that's not random. It is because, once again, the music wants us to think about, to remember that time here is of utmost importance at all times. And this fight we also don't see up close. It's as if no one wanted to muffle our sight too, which I find extremely interesting. Meanwhile, on Earth, we see Murph and Tom having a similar fight, even though not a physical one. But the parallel is unmistakable because we go back and forth between Earth and space as if Nolan wanted to tell us, look at these characters, look at Murph, look at Coop. They're both doing the same thing. They're raging against the giant of the light. So on Earth... Murph, which is played by a brilliantly flawed, sad and persistent Jessica Chastain, is trying to convince Tom and his family to leave. The dust in their lungs has reached concerning levels at this point. But Tom is being viciously dismissive of her and her reasons for urging them to leave. And now this is when we go back to space and we see that Man has successfully managed to break Cooper's protective helm. Then back again on Earth, the huge high-stakes composition by Zimmer is as loud as Murph's thoughts while she and her co-worker drive trying to decide the next move. So we go back again to space to keep up the parallel and Cooper is literally fighting for his own life, betrayed by what he thought was an ally. So these parallels between different scenes, characters and music is one of the reasons why Nolan's movies can convey feeling and pathos so efficiently. The exact moment when Cooper can reach the transmitter that Man had taken away from him is also the moment Murph turns back in her car. And again, we have the high stakes, don't give up, rage against the dying of the light composition um, going, you know, underneath the whole scene and elevating the whole scene. It still makes me get goosebumps even after having watched this so many times. <laughs> it's kind of incredible. And then we have another emotional moment when we see Murph diving into the cornfields like Father did when she was young in, in the car like in the very beginning of the movie. And at some point she stops, she throws some kind of flammable liquid on the corn. This is, of course, a plan to make her brother and his family leave the house they're currently staying in, which is the house that they grew up in. Meanwhile, in space, Dr. Brand has received Cooper's cry for help. And we see as a sort of hidden flashback, little Merv and Cooper holding their identical watches, one of which he gifted Merv before leaving. And it's Coop seeing why he holds dear for the last time. He's nearing death and he sees his kids with his eyes closed, like Dr. Mann had stated while he was leaving him to die. 
Tom runs outside his family house. He sees the fire eating away the crops. And at the same time, Coop is being rescued by Dr. Brand, while Romilly is finally able to access the data on the ill-working robot who was supposed to be assisting Dr. Mann in his mission. I'm sorry, says Cooper, trying to catch his breath while safe inside the spaceship with Dr. Brand. Mann was lying. The music is now reaching the climax. Everything is frantic and you get the distinct feeling that this is a life or death situation, which it is. Dr. Brand gets immediately in contact with Romilly, who's inside the compound Mann was staying in, trying to analyse the data he found on the robot, that same data that doesn't align with what Dr. Mann had told him. The music stops right after Tars, the robot assisting Romilly, Dr. Brand and Coop on their mission screams, step back, professor, step back. There's an explosion, muffled, as if we were witnessing it from inside the NASA suit Dr. Man, who's watching the explosion, wears. The heaviness of the moment hits like nothing else. Just to immediately go back to Murph. It's almost like no one was telling us that when things like this happen, you don't have time to think, to process what has happened. You're immediately up to the next thing. You don't have time to think too long in space. Everything is frantic again. And the, our characters, they just have to go on. Again, a testament to the talent that Nolan has for storytelling. Man has now jumped on the ranger that had been left behind by Romilly. Coop and Dr. Brand are now flying over what's left of Man's compound. Tars runs out of it. Also, can we just appreciate as we've done elegant robot movements? Because I find myself being hypnotized by them every time I watch it. And it's another incredibly crafted detail that really adds to the movie. So Tars gets aboard and communicates that Romilly hasn't been able to make it. They now have to stop Man from getting hold of the mothership. We find out that Tars has made it so that the ranger cannot attempt docking on autopilot and Man doesn't know how to do so manually. Scooper tries to reach out to Man. Do not attempt docking. I repeat, do not attempt docking. But Man shuts it up. Murph now is back in her family's house, back in her room. She gets out the old watch her father gave her before he left. He had stopped at 8.35. Man is now trying to dock manually, and the music is as tense as can be. He seems to be docking successfully, but an alarm goes off. He opens the hatch, and we see Cooper trying to reach him still. If you open the hatch, the airlock will depressurize. Dr. Brand is suddenly able to reach man, but he is blown off mid-sentence. And there is a stunning, terrible shot of the endurance spinning faster due to the explosion, while the cabin floats in pieces through space. Complete silence. Cooper is now going straight for the endurance. Coop, what are you doing? Docking. Music is huge again, 
Stakes are as high as they've ever been. Cooper, this is no time for caution, says Kays. No time for caution is also the name of the wonderful piece of music underneath the scene. Cooper tells Kays to take control if he blacks out. He's going to try and dock, which means having to make the ship spin, the ranger spin to match the spinning of the endurance. The moment Cooper commands initiating spin is the moment the music grows even more. Literally no time for caution. Bran passes out due to the spinning. Cooper is trying to hold on. The music is as beautiful as ever. We are locked, Cooper. To be honest, I'm getting emotional now just saying this. And I don't really think I'll ever get over this movie, this scene, or or the composition anytime soon. It is truly flawless in its humanity and its emotion. It is a beautiful ode to what it means to be human, I think. Or what it means to be the best that we can be. Dr. Bran here wakes up. She laughs and Cooper follows. They now have to enter the endurance. Kays warns them they are now slipping towards Gargantua. Cooper wants to let it slide and suddenly all sorts of alarms are going off. They don't have enough life support at this point to be able to make it back to Earth. But Cooper says they might make it to Edmund's planet. The fuel is also not enough. But Coop has a plan. Gantra is going to pull them down towards her horizon, and they're going to use this pull to push themselves fast towards Edmund's planet manually. But what about time slippage? asks Dr. Brand. But there is no time to be worrying about that. And Brand here does something that gets me so emotional every single time. She leans in. Both her and Cooper are wearing the suit and the helmets. She touches his helm with hers, cupping the side of it with her hands. And she looks him straight in the eyes. I'm sorry, Cooper. She knows how much Cooper is sacrificing right now, not being able to go back to Earth, to his daughter and son, not being able to do the one thing he promised Murphy would do not being able to be a good father, even if it's for a good cause. She knows how much Cooper is giving up, and she acknowledges it. Cooper suggests Tars gets left behind while they're inside the black hole. It's interesting to see how we've come to feel for this robot, who's been an important part of the journey and a very, very helpful hand. But like Tars himself points out to uh, protesting Dr. Brand, this is part of the mission, and if he's able to collect data while inside the black hole while also getting it back to Earth, the people on Earth might still make it. We see now an incredibly beautiful shot of the black hole and its horizon, and you could literally look at it for hours, this mix of dimensions. And now the moment, the moment they turn on engine to the max, the composition in the background, I 
I simply have no words for it. It is the same that guided us while Coop was leaving Murph. And you can see in your in your hand so clearly the desperate face of little Murph held back by her grandpa's arms while screaming for her dad to come back. This is genius cinema because it is built on emotion. A turbulence of emotions follows. This little manoeuvre is going to cost us 51 years, yells Cooper. We think about Murph and Tars gets detached. Suddenly, Ranger 2 prepare to detach. This is the order Coop gives. Brand, startled, tries to stop him. Cooper had told Brand they had enough resources for the both of them. But it wasn't true. He is part of what needs to be left behind. Brand cries while Cooper detaches. It is a beautiful and heartbreaking moment. And again, you know, I'm crying again watching this. Literally, you need tissues for the entirety of the movie. Amelia Brand cannot hear him anymore. Tars cannot hear him anymore. Interference is strong. And Cooper says, flashes of lightness and blackness. Turbulence in the gravity is increasing. Alarms go off. Gravity is pulling stronger and stronger. And Coop doesn't have control over the ranger anymore. We go back to Merv and we see that she's still looking through her old stuff while Cooper ejects himself into space. And then there's silence. You can hear Cooper's voice, his ragged breath. And he starts falling. He falls and falls and falls, dimensions going past him. At some point he stops. And he looks like he's trapped behind lines and lines and lines that form geometrical shapes. And these lines look a little bit like books. And finally Coop is able to get a glimpse of what lays behind these lines that he's trapped into. Tries to push them. And a young Murph, brushing her hair on the bed, gets startled by the sound of him pushing against the books. He screams for her as she gets close to the library, taking a model of the space shuttle in her hands. Then the scene changes and we see an older Murph now, the one who was looking at her old self back in her family's house. She looks at the library, a look that's both lost in her memory and finally sort of understanding of her ghost. The desperation that Coop feels when little Merv gets away from the library is almost unbearable. His cries out loud, he's surrounded by Merv's library, and everything that has happened inside that room is playing again and again around him. And seeing Coop so desperate is a very weird experience for the audience, I, I think, or at least it was for me, because you've seen him so ready throughout the whole movie, always able to deal with the situation, always able to find a quick solution. And now we just see 
his desperation. Don't go, you idiot. Don't go, yells Cooper, hopelessly watching a younger version of himself leaving Murph to embark on the mission. He suddenly remembers what Murph had said back then. He has a revelation, an epiphany of sorts. It's Morse. He pushes the books according to Morse. The older version of Murph on the other side has understood, and she's pulling now down the books. Stay is what Coop communicates through Morse to a young Murph. At this point, older Murph has tears running down her face while she looks at the library, head full of thoughts and heart full of emotion. The music now is soft, as soft as our hearts right now. Again, we're crying. Don't let me leave, Murph. Don't let me leave. Coop screams through sobs, and we are sobbing too, so much, so hard. It is a form of desperation that's too huge to be held. And at this point, we see an older Murph muttering, it was you, almost in disbelief, but not really, looking at the library. She reaches towards it, and she says, you were my ghost. At this point, we're fucking bawling. <laughs> There's no turning back. Um, she smiles through tears, a white smile that we had yet to see on her. And our hearts at this point are really about to explode. Coop is on the other and he cries. And suddenly we hear Tar's voice. He has survived somewhere in their fifth dimension, he says. He also says they saved us, but who is they? asks Cooper. I don't know, but they constructed this three-dimensional space inside their five-dimensional reality to allow you to understand it. Time is represented here as a physical dimension, says Tars. The library that surrounds Coop, all the different versions of it, allow him to get a glimpse of a different moment in time. Gravity, to send a message. Gravity can cross dimensions, including time. And now, the most important question, Coop asks, do you have the quantum data? Roger, I have it. But Taz also says that nothing is getting out so far. And at this point, Coop gets an idea. He thinks that he can transmit it to Murph, because she's not just any child, after all. Also, Taz here says something that really makes Cooper think. He says, they didn't bring us here to change the past. No, they didn't bring us here at all. We brought ourselves. Taz giving me the coordinates of NASA in binary. And that's it. We're back to the beginning of the movie, circular. This is how it all started. We're here to communicate with a three-dimensional world. Okay, let me say something here. This whole movie relies a lot on exposition, as it's understandable. The topics touched are difficult to understand for someone who's not in the field. But if exposition can sometimes feel forced and even unnecessary, in Interstellar it's done beautifully with such craft, attention, and especially, maybe most important of all, with respect for its audience. 
this is not a film that wants you to feel stupid. It wants to make you understand, but at the same time, it trusts your capacity to understand difficult concepts. It doesn't bring it all down to your level, but rather it pushes you up to its level. It guides you there, gently but surely. And it's maybe one of the biggest compliments you can give to any piece of work, I think. All of this is one little girl's bedroom, every moment. It's infinitely complex. They have access to infinite time and space, but they're not bound by anything. They can't find a specific place in time. They can't communicate. That's why I'm here. I'm going to find a way to tell Merv, just like I found this moment. How Cooper. Love, Tars, love. It's just like Bran said. My connection with Murph is quantifiable. It's key. So now Cooper only has to find out how to tell her. All this is happening while he is flying through the many libraries around him. And this gives off a sense of continuity. And again, we see that nothing is done randomly with Nolan. The watch. That's it. We code data into the movement of the second hand. Tars, translate the data into Morse and feed it back to me. She's gonna come back because I gave it to her, Cooper says. He's very sure of Marth, very sure of their connection. And just in case you were wondering, yes, we are still crying. <laughs> Nothing changed. And just when Alda Murph is leaving her room with her wash in hand, she stops in the middle of it. She looks at this smaller hand, at the second hand of the watch moving up and down. Stuck, in a sense. She understands. Eyes widen, music gets louder and even more impressive. Murph runs outside to her car, to her co-worker, just as Tom comes back. He came back. It was him all the time. I didn't know it was him. Dad's going to save us. And there she is. Little hopeful Murph again. She never really left. She hugs Tom. And you've guessed it right, boys and girls and everyone in between. We are still crying. Murph is now translating Moore's code from her watch. She's finally able to complete the equation. Eureka, she screams throwing the papers she wrote on from one of the highest floors of the NASA station. And we've never been happier. Back in space, Tars and Coop are trying to understand who these beings are. Don't you get it, Tars? They're not beings. They are us. Cooper, people couldn't build this. No, not yet. But one day, a civilization that's evolved past the four dimensions we know. Everything around Cooper melts. He sees the endurance. He sees Dr. Brand. And he touches her hand. This is the first handshake. Right back in the first part of the movie while they were entering the black hole. Everything is circular. 
Cooper is floating in space. We see Saturn in the background and a distant light of a spaceship. He wakes up. He is in what looks like a hospital. And the doctor tells him he's got to take his low. He's now 124 years old. The rangers found you with only minutes left in your oxygen supply. Cooper gets up, looks behind the curtains, and what he sees startles him. A big smile slowly forming on his face. This is a world where physics works differently. Where am I? Cooper Station, currently orbiting Saturn. Nice of you to name it after me. The nurse laughs. It's not named after you, sir. It's named after your daughter. Is she still alive? She'll be here in a couple of weeks. This is Murphy Cooper we're talking about. Yes, it is. The scene changes. Cooper is brought to his old house, which is now a museum. The TV in the entrance shows an old woman, one of the people that we saw at the very opening of the movie. In, and we know now that this is Murph. Inside the house, other screens are showing old people talking about how it was to live on Earth back then. And Tars, now not functioning, lies inside the museum as well. It cuts to another scene, and we see Cooper managing to bring Tars back to life, a companion of sorts from his past life. We get to the very last scene. Take out all the tissues you have, because this is going to get messy, I promise you. They tell Cooper that Merv has arrived and that she won't be moving to a new station. She'll end her life here on Cooper Station. Coop opens the door to her room. Many people are gathered around her and she's in the hospital bed and starts laughing and crying as soon as she sees him. Coop cannot believe his eyes. The rest of the family exits the room while she holds out a hand for him with a happiness that we have only seen once on Murph's face before. He grasps her hand firmly, leans down close to her face. The music is soft and soft are our hearts right now. Heavy and light at the same time. It was me, Merv. I was your ghost. I know people didn't believe me. They thought that I was doing it all myself, but she shows him the watch. He had left her proudly. I knew who it was. Cooper kisses her hand, both his hands holding hers. Tears in his eyes. Nobody believed me, but I knew you'd come back. How? Because my dad promised me. 
So now fucking let it all go, folks. Just cry as you've never cried before. I'm like, I'm tearing up right now. For fuck's sake. <laughs> I'm here now, Murph. I'm here. Murph insists. He goes. She doesn't want his dad to watch her die. She has her family with her. But Coop asks, where, where should I go? She replies, Brand. She's out there, setting up camp, alone in a strange galaxy. We cut to another scene. Coop and Taz are preparing for leaving. And we see Dr. Brand on Edmund's planet, but Edmund's isn't there anymore. The music grows. It matches our emotions perfectly. Maybe right now she's setting in for the long nap by the light of our new sun in our new home. Dr. Brand cries, looking at the planet she's on. She doesn't have her helmet on. One last shot, Amelia Brand walking towards base. Silence. Written and directed by Christopher Nolan. There you go, folks. We did it. We got to the end of it. It was very taxing, emotionally speaking, but I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I'm really happy I had the chance to rewatch it a couple of times and and really dive deep into it, really, really deep, as I had never done before. Um, I really hope you liked it too, you appreciated it, and I hope you got something out of it. And hopefully, if you have already watched it, maybe you'll go back to it. And yeah, that, that would make me very happy indeed. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next weeks with some more episodes. Bye-bye.